Thank you very much, Ruth Ann, for ministering in music. In response to God's love, we should be open and willing to hear God's word and apply it in our life, being doers and not hearers only. As you look at history, there have been people that have been abandoned or left alone. Think about Joseph, a favorite son of his father Jacob. But yet when he went to his brothers one day, they took him, took his robe, put him in a pit, sold him into slavery, and went back and told their father that Joseph had been killed. And he spent some 13 years in Egypt, separated from his family. Daniel spent some time in Nebuchadnezzar's government, abandoned from others from in his family. A child at times may be playing with others, and children sometimes get into their quarrels, and they say, they say we're going to leave this kid alone, and we're going to go do our thing. And that child, for a period of time, may feel alone and abandoned. There's a man who lived back in the 40s and 50s, Arlan Popov, who was a pastor in Romania, and he was taken one time and spent 13 years alone at the hands of the communists in prison and suffered greatly and was brought to the point of death numerous times, but alone, no company, no other believers to encourage him. You go to persecuted countries today, you will find that many times people are abandoned in the sense that they are taken and they spend time in prison apart from their family. Mark 14 is the account of Jesus being abandoned by those close to him, by Judas, by the other 11, being abandoned by the teachers and of the law and the Pharisees. And keep in mind that Mark 14, the overall theme, if you want to give it a theme, could be the fact that Jesus is being abandoned by those he loved, by Judas, by the 11. And in verses 1 through 11, we find the preparation for Jesus being abandoned in the sense that during that time, Jesus is anointed. And then we find that there's a prediction of his being abandoned during the Lord's Supper. We know that he says, Judas, or one of you will betray me, and it was Judas. And then he says right after that, that the other 11 would deny even knowing him. There's a prediction of Peter's denial. And Peter very strongly denies that, but yet he denies. We find that the three later on in Mark 14, Peter, James, and John are asked to go with Jesus to watch with him while he prayed. And what do they do? They fall asleep. And then we find during his arrest and involvement with the Sanhedrin that the eleven just forsake him. 
And then in chapter 14, we find that Peter, at the end of the chapter, actually denies knowing Christ three times. With those thoughts in mind, let's begin reading with Mark 14 and verse 12. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparation for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left and went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me. Three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. The description of the Passover is strongly reminiscent of the preparation of the entry into Jerusalem in chapter 11 of Mark. In both passages, Jesus sends two disciples on an errand that must be completed if events are to proceed. Both errands involve mysterious meetings and transpire exactly as Christ predicted. Both accounts also share 11 consecutive words in common. The effect of the stories show that Christ knew what was coming before it happened. Jesus is not, in this context, a tragic hero caught in events beyond his control. There is no hint of desperation, fear, anger, or futility in his part. 
Jesus does not cower or retreat as plots are hatched out against him. They're merely fulfilling the Father's will. He displays as he does throughout the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels a sovereign freedom and authority to follow the course that was chosen for him in accordance with his Father's plan. Judas and the others may act against him, but they don't act upon him. Why? He is obeying his Father. He's dependent upon his Father. The best place for him is to be in the center of his Father's will, just as the best place for us is to be in the center of the Father's will. Whether that be a husband loving his wife, whether that be a wife complimenting her husband, whether that be parents teaching and training their children, or children who are seeking to be obedient to their parents, or employees seeking to respond to their boss, according to Scripture. The text says, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now keep in mind, you had Passover. After Passover, then you had seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And many times, the two feasts are combined in the sense that they're referred to the eight days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So this is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It would be when the Passover lamb would have been sacrificed, and we talked about that a couple weeks ago. And then on the next day, they would begin what was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. According to Deuteronomy 16, 5 through 8, Passover had to be celebrated within the walls of Jerusalem. This produced a great influx of pilgrims coming from throughout the Jewish nation into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The population would increase during this period of time. Josephus and his history of Israel and so on would have stated that during the Passover, Passover of A.D. 66, the year the temple was completed, that 255,600 lambs were slaughtered in the temple. Allowing an average of 10 diners per lamb, Josephus calculated that 2.5 million people were present in Jerusalem, not counting pilgrims who come for various reasons. But it seems almost inconceivable that Jerusalem at that time could have contained that many pilgrims, that many people. But nevertheless, his description does communicate the crowding, the congestion, the expectancy, the urgency as people come to Jerusalem to sacrifice a Passover lamb. And it's in this context that Jesus is asked, where do you want us to go and make preparation for you to eat the Passover? Apparently, previous years, Jesus ate the Passover with the 12. They're going to do the same thing this year. As you think about the Passover in Jerusalem, I want you also to try to get a visual picture, but in your mind, be thinking of the smell in Jerusalem. 
You have thousands of sheep. And what do sheep do? Bah, bah. What else do they do? Something comes out behind them at times. And what else do they do? When they're slaughtered, you're going to have blood. They're going to be put on the altar and you have all kinds of smell. Because you have burning flesh. So when we think of worship, we think of a church service where everything is very nice. It's decorated. You have flowers, you have pews, and we do everything very orderly. Now bring into that picture 50 sheep in here who are going to be slaughtered. And then they're going to be sacrificed. Now that just kind of changes the picture a little of what we think of worship. So the Passover, you know, the sacrifice lamb, they're going to be celebrating the Passover meal itself. So just step back mentally and let that play in your brain. Jesus and the twelve are involved in the context. Jesus sends two disciples, as the text states, and it seems to be his pattern of always sending at least two, not one. And that's an interesting concept that he didn't send one, sends two. A man carrying a jar of water would have caught their eye, for carrying water was normally the labor of women or slaves. The owner of the house to which the man carrying the water jar was to be asked for room to celebrate the Passover. And the instructions that Jesus gives go into the city, in verse 13, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room where I might eat the, eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. Jesus is predicting what they're going to see. He is in control in a sense of events. Finding a room was not unique. Jewish residents of Jerusalem were expected to make available spare rooms for the pilgrims who came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So the guest room requested by Jesus was evidently a, such a room. Mark describes it as a large upper room, furnished and ready. Furnished should not be understood as a lot of furniture, but rather the spreading out of carpets, rugs, on which the twelve along with Jesus would have reclined, <coughs> along with perhaps a table, but it was a well-laid-out banquet room. It is in this context that we find Jesus celebrating what we call the Last Supper with the Twelve. And again, in verses 17 through 21, Jesus states in verse 18, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Then we have the Last Supper, and then we have the def- or, uh, that shouldn't be definition, that would be defection of the disciples. They're going to back away. They're going to, in time, say, we don't know, and that is predicted. You'll find Mark quite often has sandwiches, piece of bread, 
some meat and another piece of bread. He did that in the early part of Luke, or I'm sorry, Mark chapter 14. So we have a betrayal, we have the Last Supper, and then we have defection. Jesus basically is going to be abandoned. In the midst of betrayal and defection, Christ focuses on the will of the Father. He celebrates the Last Supper. How often do we focus on the betrayal and the fact that the eleven are going to deny knowing him rather than focusing on Jesus and having the Last Supper with the twelve? It's interesting, too, that God's will for Jesus involved betrayal and defection. You know, people backing away. Have you ever stopped to consider that God's will for you may involve someone betraying you at times and backing away from you? Because... Peter, I'm sorry, Paul talks about the fact that he wanted to celebrate in the sufferings of Christ. In this sandwich of Mark, the betrayal, Christ's obedience, and then the defection of the eleven, the B part stands out. In the present construction, self-sacrifice of Jesus in the Last Supper contrasts dramatically with the unfaithfulness of the disciples. It is, in other words, not the worthy for whom Jesus lays down his life, but precisely the unworthy, even the cowardly and the unfaithful. In the midst of Judas' betrayal being predicted, Jesus celebrating the Last Supper, and the eleven going to say, we don't know Jesus. Jesus celebrates the Last Supper. Romans 5 says, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, the twelve were following him, but one of them betrays and the other eleven say, later on, we don't know him. And what is Jesus concerned about? His obedience to the Father. That sandwich just drives home Christ and what he has done. Now let's go to another passage in John chapter 13. Next week we'll pick up more in Mark 14, but go to John chapter 13. And we find in John chapter 13, the account of the Last Supper. Jesus washing the feet of the twelve. And as you think about the Passover, keep in mind that the Passover had a particular order, which is listed on PowerPoint. You had the first cup, you had the washing of hands, the green vegetables, the bitter herb reminding them of the bitterness of Israel's time in Egypt. You had the middle matzah, the telling of the story, the history of the Passover. The second cup, you had the dipping of the matzah. You had the dinner, you had the blessing 
and then the bread, the third cup, a fourth cup, and then a closing hymn. In the context of what we call communion and the context of the Last Supper, when Jesus gave the bread, that would be tied in here. And when he gave the cup and said, drink it, would be tied in with the third cup. Now, in the context of this happening, look at verse 1 of John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to, his, to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And again, I want to drive home the point that in the midst of knowing what is coming, the cross, knowing that the eleven are going to deny knowing him, knowing that Judas is going to betray him, having loved his owner were in the world, he showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things in his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured out water in a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Peter answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So they've been reclining at the table. And remember, they did not sit at a table as we would. They would have reclined, probably leaning on their left elbow, and would have been able to eat with their right. And next week we'll discuss it more, but Peter was probably to the right of him. Or John, I'm sorry, was to the right of him. Judas would have been to the left of him. Because Peter would have motioned to John to ask him about who's going to betray. And then Judas being to his left, he could have just handed him the bread. Now again, think about that in the context of Christ's death. The one who is going to betray him is next to him. 
But Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Let's go on in verse 18. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted his heel against me. He who shares my bread has lifted his heel against me. Judas has spent three years, some three years, with Jesus. He's going to lift his heel against him. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I am he, Christ the Messiah. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I will tell you the truth. One of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciples whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked, Lord, who is it? These guys have spent three years with Jesus. He has sent them out. They have ministered. They have served. And now he says, one of you is going to betray me. Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I give this piece of bread. When I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the bread, he gave it to Judas, who was probably to his left. Gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you're about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. Now, I want you to notice the next two verses, 31 and 32. When he had gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My little children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, just as I have told the Jews. So I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. In 31 and 32, in the midst of the obedience of Jesus, There is betrayal.
Jesus' obedience involved betrayal, and it involved the other 11 saying, we don't know this guy. But in the same context, we find that in the midst of betrayal and denial, the Son of God is glorified. Now, in 31, is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will glorify the Son in Himself and will glorify Him at once. I want to drive home the point that there is obedience on the part of Christ, but there's denial, there's betrayal of knowing that's going to happen later, and it is in that context that God glorifies His Son, Jesus. Now, go to Acts. We're not going to turn to Acts, but if you go to Acts, we find that when Stephen is stoned, heaven's open, and he is welcomed. In the context of suffering and persecution, he is glorified. He's taken to glory. Please understand that in our culture today, we exalt easy lives. But Jesus' obedience involved betrayal and denial. And it is in that context that he is glorified. At times, obedience may be painful. It may involve betrayal. It may involve denial on the part of someone close to you. If you live in a third, not a third world country, but in a persecuted country today, you will find that many times a church will be infiltrated by people who are out to find who are true believers so that they can turn them into the authorities and they can be persecuted. It is in this context that Mark's gospel was written as we discussed Mark 14 and then tied in some things from John 13. And how did Mark's readers, the Roman Believers, hear this. I'm of the conviction, in light of the fact that they were being persecuted, they would have read about Christ and his obedience to the Father involved betrayal, involved denial, but it involved glory. That they would have been tremendously encouraged. Why? We get to die for Jesus. We're following his example. And because of who he is as a son of God, we will follow him. We will not deny knowing him. Christ suffered. We may also suffer. So let's wrap up our discussion before we celebrate communion this morning with some applications. The identity of Jesus is vital to the hearers of Mark's gospel. 
Mark's gospel is explaining Jesus, who he is. He's the unique son of God. He's the one who heals, the one who teaches, who raises the dead. And as they get to the end of the book of Mark, they would understand, yes, we're following a living Savior. He came from the dead. But that same encouragement should be true of us today. See, they are communicated to that he knew in advance about the man carrying the water jar. He knew in advance who would betray him. And they would grasp, I think, that he is the son of God. Not a tragic hero caught in events beyond his control. Jesus is the feast. Think about that in the context of life in 21st century America. You go to school, and if you're committed to following Christ, listening to teachers and studying and being honest in your answers and so on, at times you may be made fun of. You may go to your job and you may want to give an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. You want to treat your co-workers in a godly way. You want to use building words. And someone may say to you, you goody two-shoe, you work too hard. Or some co-worker may betray you in some way, shape, or form. You may go off to college And you take a stand for Christ in the sense that you're just living out your faith. And I'm not talking about doing anything beyond just living well. And you will probably run into people that say, I can't agree with you. The conviction of Jesus Christ being the Son of God is core to standing firm in the midst of denial, betrayal, and opposition. In whatever way, shape, or form it may come. Another possible application. The Father's will for Jesus involved betrayal, defection. This was part of Christ's obedience. Obedience to God's will does not always mean peaches and cream. Oh, eternally it does. But in this life, there may be some hardship. But it goes back to understanding Christ and who he is. Jesus mentioned or mentions to the 12 a number of times, well, when something happens in the future, you'll remember what I said. Don't be surprised when humans fail or fall, fail, sin and disappoint. We live in a fallen world. Accept disappointment from others as life, but continue to follow Christ and rest in him. See, Jesus was following his father. Judas was going to betray him. The eleven are going to deny knowing him. And what does he do? He just continues on. People will disappoint us at times. Don't be shocked. 
but continue to follow Christ because you're committed to him and who he is. There was a young person who went off to college a number of years ago with a commitment to be obedient to Christ, to follow Christ. He was going to what we would call a secular college. It was not a Christian school. He had a heart for God, just a passion to obey. In that college setting, there were students who told him, don't study, take it easy, go easy street. Let's go out and party tonight. And instead of going out and partying, he went to bed so he would be a half awake or at least more awake to go worship rather than having a hangover. He was made fun of at times. And sitting in class as the prof would expound on evolution and how the world get here, he in the back of his mind would be thinking, I need to follow God and God as creator. He get through college, firm in his faith, because he was following Christ for who he was. In the midst of some difficulties along the way, he remained faithful. Mark calls the Roman believers, calls us today to focus on Christ. Follow him. Not for what he will do, but for who he is. And as we partake of communion, think about Christ. Think about what took place at the Last Supper. That in the midst of betrayal, in the midst of denial, he was obedient and he loved his own. Think about the fact that he was dying for those who betrayed, those who denied. Then, and for people today. Think about the fact that as we partake of the cup, we partake of the bread, and we'll discuss that a little more next week as far as some meaning involved, that we're reflecting on Christ and what he did on the cross the next day in terms of the time period of which we are discussing. Think about the fact that we don't just need the cross when we came to Christ. We need the cross every day. We need Christ every day because we struggle in daily life. We sin. We don't have the ability to live well in obedience to the Father. So as we partake of communion, if you're a believer, you're more than welcome to partake as the men come forward as we worship the Lord through communion.